today on the Hay Kings podcast. I'm joined again by Dennis Swinger. Dennis is an irrigated and dry land farmer in central Washington state, and he's going to educate us a little bit on those crops today and some of the thought processes that go into managing a fairly large farming operation. Welcome, Dennis. Great to be with you again, John. You're doing all sorts of different crops and different rotations, and somewhere along the line, you've bailed off some wheat straw to sell, and now you have a new market. Have you sold any wheat straw down to that straw board plant in south-central Washington? Yes, that was with the company came in, and it was a turnkey operation. It was, you go here, you take it off, and give me a check. Because I don't have any any hay equipment at all. Before my time, when we had any baling and and, uh, hay type equipment, it's just not been part of our rotation. What I see though now, as we move into dry land, we are transitioning into a no-till operation. We will probably be doing less and less because occasionally you'll get a year where you get a huge rain and all of a sudden you'll have a bunch of hay or straw there that you need to deal with. On our wheat acres under the irrigation, we'll do some of that, but typically those go to a, uh, not to the board press, but a gentleman that has been here for several years that takes it to, I believe he's into Canada for mushroom beds. That's kind of a unique market for straw products. Yeah, yeah. or And I think mushroom beds at one point, I think they're also doing some feeding with it up there, mixing it as bulk material in their feeding. Grinding it for livestock. Yes. Yeah, yeah. and Rob's been here for a long time in the basin area. And so when we partner with people like that, it's um, not a function of how much money we're going to get. It's timeliness. We will work with you if you can make this residue removal happen timely for us. And it's been like that. We do the same with our bluegrass straw with a... family that has a feedlot over here by Warden. They run enough hay acres and it works right into their rotation that they can come bale our bluegrass straw after we've threshed it and get it out of here. They grind it with their feed. Those secondary and tertiary markets we're not as apt to capitalize on because it's more about timing and a downstream effect into our operation. You're talking about getting the next crop in. That's what really matters. Yes. I mean, I don't want to sacrifice trying to optimize $5,000 when I'm looking at $150,000 opportunity cost to not be timely with a a specialty crop. Just how many crops are you talking about? You've listed off several. Well, right now, Because of the diminishing water, we are concentrating on the the hybrid canola seed and the Kentucky bluegrass seed and then the potato acres. That's where water is going to because those are high-value crops. Right now on an acre of ground, pick one someplace under a pivot. What's that rotation look like? You're going to have a potato crop. You're going to run in with a wheat crop, hopefully get in a bluegrass crop or the, the hybrid canola in there at some point. We've got to be five years between the potatoes and we need to be five years between the brassicas. So you're you're getting a potato crop, you're getting a wheat crop in behind the potatoes to help restore some soil structure. Because the potatoes, by the time you've dug them, you beat up the ground pretty hard. And you've also packed it pretty well So with soil compaction. So you have to do some really deep tillage and then run a crop of, of winter wheat and then after the winter wheat, you may be looking at some canola, maybe even a back-to-back wheat, 
but some canola in there. And then at some point, if you can get a bluegrass crop in, then you're going to do that. The bluegrass can be in there between two and three years. But typically, if you're going to go into a bluegrass rotation, that will sit fallow until sometime in August 10th, that 5th to 10th of August is when we'll plant the crop of bluegrass seed so you can get it established and have a crop the very next year. And by not having a crop the, the year before, or the, the fall before and into the spring, it gives you a chance to either chemically or tillage-wise really get a handle on anything that's going to, uh, of a weed or a pest crop that's going to come into that bluegrass. As things come in, as the water comes in, we've grown uh, corn, we've grown beans, we've grown peas. Those just become another part of the rotation. You have this existing rotation. How does that change with a different water? That puts us back into you know, more high-value crops. We have to be into the more high-value crops because if we raise 150 bushel of wheat, you know what the wheat price is. That isn't going to pay the maintenance and operation and the construction cost on the new water. That winter wheat component where you're talking 150 bushels, there's somebody in the Midwest that just tipped over dead here in that number, and you're throwing it out there like it's kind of normal. As you're talking about that winter wheat component of your rotation, what can you replace that with? Does it look more like double cropping spuds and no. buckwheat? or Because no, that, that happens not too far from I, you. I know. We've done buckwheat, and in some rotations it will work. I don't like it in our rotation because it puts us later in the year you're swathing it and you're more exposed to weather events that are going to be prohibitive for harvest and that's a really fancy way of saying you're going to get your windrows rained on and be crappy gotcha it's also a difficult volunteer crop to control you don't have a really good option to replace your winter wheat with no 150 bushel is that is some max production with some of these varieties um and we will sacrifice yield for quality as far as protein. But to make it an option, and there is very little in in our scheme of things that would bring back the ability to get organic matter and soil structure rebuilt on a deeper level like the, the wheat straw does. The 150 bushels, you know, I think what's the, the big one that comes out here is 175, I think, or the... The big numbers that the guys are pushing, but I think their quality is kind of lower. Not where you need to be. Yeah. <laughs> lower is what but, you're saying. Yeah. Not as desirable. <laughs> and people do that in the area too. When you're working with these high value crops, you will have a rotational crop that you are going to be okay with it being hopefully a break even or just to make a little bit more. Because you need a break in chemistry, because you need a break in tillage, because you need a different timing for the water. You know, if you try and have everything sucking up water at the same time, that's a no-go. And that's where, like a production canola for us when we first started getting into canola, well, it would be done with water by the time the potatoes and the bluegrass are really, really sucking up hard water. And the bluegrass is finishing as the potatoes are just, those circles are staying on because they are just sucking up massive amounts of water as they're building that tuber. So your managerial skill set here is a lot more than which variety and what amount of fertilizer to put on. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, it's, uh, well, we've got a chart and I forget how many years out, but our rotational chart, you start plugging in 
what crop for the rotation. So you've got potatoes here every five years. And then we haven't been here for five years with canola. And then you start filling in the blanks. And that, you know, it's a a big game of Chinese checkers at times. Because you're also responding to those market prices. Correct. And you are also responding to what kind of uh, chemistry each crop is, is using. And so you've got carryover you know, if you've got chemical residue that, okay, we can't come here because that's got a 24-month plant back. Okay, that changes this scheme or we have to have a chat about what kind of chemistry we're using because we can't have that. We've got restrictions. It's a big moving puzzle. That is complex. <laughs> that's the only way I can describe that as complex. <laughs> well, and it's when you step back and look at it, but it's also one of those things that you know, as you evolve into it, it's kind of just what you do. Switching gears here a little bit. Oh, I'm 30 years old and farming several hundred acres and working a full-time job and plus farming full-time. What advice would you give to somebody like me? Or what advice would you give to yourself 20 years ago? <sighs> Listen to your farm credit advisor. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, to... That's going to be tricky for that, me. <laughs> I know. I say that rather blithely, but... <laughs> access those people who are playing to your weaknesses. I had this discussion with my father at one point and it was, uh, you know, I've been trying to get this across to you for, since you were 10 years old. It's like, I know, huh? It's not going to happen. These are the things I do really, really well. Mm -hmm. These other things, let's figure out somebody else to do them. Cause I have proven to you over the past 35 years that I'm not going to get it done right. That's what I would say to myself early on. Identify your strengths, identify your weaknesses, and fill those gaps with trusted sources. You can find all the information you want. Uh, That's baby. And that's, I don't know how to, I don't know how to give that advice. That's just, uh, you know, find those trusted sources and find one. Because, like I said earlier, I can point out to my neighbors and this one's got a college degree. That one's got a master's degree. This guy's got a college degree. They've all been farming longer than I have and they're not stupid. They have different opinions and different ideas because of their experience. And if you try and gather all that information and experience, you're going to spin yourself into a a little tight web and get nothing done. You know, the, the whole analysis paralysis thing is as as evident in agriculture as it is in anything. Somebody fretting and fretting over which piece of equipment to buy or what crop to put in the ground. You just got to take the information that you have and make the best decision and and not look back. I I have that discussion. I got my degree in agricultural education from WSU, and I went and did my student teaching, and I came home to the farm because I didn't really want to teach anymore, and I have been teaching every day since. It was kind of one of those, well, what did you think was going to happen? But part of that, I'll go out with somebody, and even with longtime employees, it's like, okay, you need to set the depth. We're seeding wheat. Set the depth. Get a representation. But you can't set the depth all day. At some point, you have to make acres. You've got to, okay, we're going to run the combines. You can't check the sample, and you can't check the output constantly or you're never going to get anything done at some point you got to make acres that would be uh 
right, wrong, or otherwise do something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you know, it's amazing as the older you get. It's like, huh, these uh, sayings we've had, <clears throat> that's kind of, they're kind of there for a reason. <laughs> Oh, now it makes sense. Now I get well, it. Well, you should have you should have seen the look on my eleven year old's face. I got him these rifles for Christmas, and I took them over to their their other granddad because he spent twenty some years in the army and the reserves and likes guns. And I said, okay, these are on an AR platform. They're twenty twos. But I asked him, hey, would you teach the boys how to break them down and clean them? And he was cleaning stuff, and he said, you want to hear it till it makes that whistle. Now you know it's clean as a whistle. And I said, you know, that's where that came from. And my 11-year-old looked at me, and was like, the, the light bulb that dawned on was, I wish I could have got a picture of that. You know, and then there, there was a couple of those little things when we were cleaning those rifles, those little sayings came out, and it's like, that's where it's from, son. They actually mean something. <laughs> Well, it's it's cool when you see those things happening. You see the the light bulb and yaha moment, and go, "Wow, that was cool! Great parenting moment." <laughs> Let's gloss that over. Let's don't talk about the, the screaming fit we all had last night. <laughs> I'm out of questions to ask you. We we've talked a whole bunch here. Well, you know, I I know I've given a couple plugs for ag forestry, but agforestry.org. Uh, the next class applications are. Being accepted right as we speak, I believe. Now, you're talking about the Washington State Ag Forestry Leadership Program. It's my understanding that uh, there's 37 other states in the U.S. that have those uh, ag and natural resource leadership programs. Australia has a similar program. Yeah. Those resources are out there. So as we were talking about managerial capacity, there's opportunities for ag producers to improve on those skill sets. True. And then not only the managerial resources, but the just flat out networking. Uh, I've known people that have gone through the the Kansas program, and somebody that went through the uh, the California program, and they echo what you and I have experienced in Washington. It is it's a life changing experience, and the the skills and the resources you take away you take away for life. All right, Dennis. This is the Hay Kings podcast, and one of the exciting things happening in the Hay Kings world is we have a few associations forming across the U.S. So if you are in the mid-Atlantic region or if you're in the eastern part of Texas, there's uh, Hay Kings getting together to form local organizations. If you're interested in joining those organizations, uh, reach out to uh, myself or any of the Hay Kings moderators and we can get you plugged in. It's a great way to go from a group of 50,000 people on Facebook to some in-person interactions. And what I'll always say is the highest form of social media is that which brings people together in person. Dennis, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's always a pleasure to get together and talk with you and, and learn what you're thinking about and the way you're viewing the world and your farming operation. Just a great time. Well, it's been my pleasure, John. It's always a treat to, to chat with you. 